0: Just in time, Harry had buried the box inside its bag into the town trash dump. There was an old gas stove resting on the bluff just above the burial spot to identify it. But that summer, not long after I'd been indicted, a near hurricane hit Hastings on Hudson. The bluff and its contents collapsed over the roadway and down the slope below it. The stove was blown down and rolled a hundred feet or more from its last position. Harry didn't tell me right away. Not until he spent days and then weeks trying to find the lost box.
1: That was Adam Tracy reading The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner, the 2017 memoir by Daniel Ellsberg, American political activist and former United States military analyst. The lost box he mentions contained documents from the Department of Defense concerning U.S. political and military involvement in Vietnam from 1945 to 1967, widely known as the Pentagon Papers. listening to Yesteryear: Stories from Home, a series that features firsthand reminiscences of the joys, challenges, and adventures of living in a small village on the Hudson just up the river from New York City. I'm Melanie Hoops, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to our show. In this installment, we'll be exploring the history of Quarry Park. A 5.5 acre parcel of land that has undergone a surprising number of very dramatic changes over the last 150 years, from a flourishing marble quarry to a majestic park to an unsightly landfill and back to a beautiful space for the public to enjoy. Today, it smells of honeysuckle and hawthorn. It rings with the music of mockingbirds and cardinals. And in these times, we welcome its story of redemption. If you're local, this land, described by the Quarry Park Study Committee as an elongated spatula, is down the old Croton Aqueduct about a block south of Washington Avenue. But how and why did the quarry transform so many times? To answer that, we look at the winter 2005 edition of The Hastings Historian, using excerpts from Mary Allison and David Willis McCulloch. We also draw from the final report of the Quarry Park Study Committee, also published in 2005. Actor Lauren Orkus from Sleepy Hollow reads material we've edited together from those two sources.
2: Perhaps the first European sightings of Hastings Marble was recorded by Dutch travelers Jasper Dankerts and Peter Sliders, who wrote in 1680, We went ashore at a place on the east side of the river where there was a meadow on fire. We saw there a beautiful hard stone, as white and as clean as I have ever seen either here or in Europe, very fine for building. But the actual harvesting of marble wouldn't happen for many years. In 1828, the land was owned by Vanbrugh Livingston, who was the first to quarry white or dolomite marble from it. At that time, Hastings had not yet acquired its name, and the area was sparsely settled, mostly by farmers. In 1834... Livingston sold the quarry and approximately 15 additional acres to George Harvey, an English painter and a friend of Washington Irving. Alicia Bloomer, a New York hat maker, leased the quarry from Harvey in 1835 for $250 a year and built an inclined railway straight down to the Hastings Wharf, where the rough stone could be cut into manageable sizes, then loaded and shipped out to projects along the East Coast. In 1838, an architect declared that Harvey's quarry produced, quote, the best Westchester marble. Harvey sold his Hastings property in 1846 to raise money to print a series of engravings of what he called atmospheric views. One of these striking watercolors, Hastings Landing, Palisades Rocks in Shadow, depicts the quarry dock and is now owned by the New York Historical Society. By 1855, the quarry operation had become the Westchester Iron Company and was Hastings' principal industry. The Greek Revival style of architecture, with its marble columns, was popular and white marble was in great demand. Samuel Warner, the architect of Marble Collegiate Church in New York City, wrote that Hastings stone was chosen because of its whiteness, which was, in stark contrast with a darker stone and more general use. Hastings marble was used far and wide for the courthouse in Richmond, Virginia, and for the Custom House in Charleston, South Carolina. Locally, portions of Lyndhurst Mansion, as well as several prominent Hastings landmarks such as Flo Ziegfeld's House, formerly on the Burke Estate, the Longview Restaurant, currently the site of the Andrus Retirement Home, and Oakledge on South Broadway are all believed to be made from the quarry stone. For much of this time, the quarry employed 50 and sometimes as many as 100 men. In the latter part of the 1850s, the property changed hands frequently, often between the same parties in what looks like some form of money laundering. For example, in January of 1857, the Westchester Marble Works sold the Quarry Railroad and Wharf back to James Wilson. Just two days later, Wilson sold the property, which included a marble mill, coal house, machine and stone-cutting shops, engines, machines, and a lime kiln, to Joseph T. Bates. The following day, Bates transferred everything back to James Wilson. Two months later, Wilson and his wife sold all their land except the store and dwelling to the Hastings Marble Company, of which Wilson was president, for 2,498 shares of stock, plus $1.00. Obviously, financial shenanigans were as commonplace then as now. In 1870, Professor John W. Draper, whose property, including present-day Draper Park, abutted the east side of the quarry, filed a suit against the owners of the quarry for damages caused by blasting. The explosions and landslides were a threat to both the neighborhood and the delicate scientific instruments in his laboratories and observatories. The final blow to quarry operations came on March 29, 1871. A portion of the eastern wall collapsed and let loose a rock slide of an estimated 2,000 tons of earth and stone. The Yonkers statesman reported that nine quarrymen, quote, fled the scene just in time to escape the most shocking death. So sudden was the fall that some of the men did not have time to secure their coats a a four-foot-high, two-and-a-half-foot-thick stone wall along the Draper boundary tumbled into the vast hole, as did a wide strip of land. Two months later, on June 9th, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of Draper and ordered a perpetual injunction against further dangerous blasting. Over the ensuing years, the abandoned quarry filled with water and had to be fenced to keep roaming goats from falling in. In 1899, the National Conduit Company purchased the quarry and the railroad. They would use the fresh water for a cooling process, and they laid pipes along the former railroad to transport the water down to the factory on the waterfront. Due to defaults on mortgage payments and a merger, Conduit became the Anaconda Wire and Cable Company in early 1930. By the mid-30s, the property looked as haggard as its checkered history, But Dr. A.C. Langmuir, a chemist and brother of the Nobel Prize-winning chemist Irving Langmuir, had a vision for this wild land. He bought the quarry from Anaconda in March of 1936, and the golden age of Quarry Park began. Inspired by Butte Chamon, a famous Parisian park that had once itself been an abandoned stone quarry, Langmuir, during the height of the Depression, hired out-of-work laborers to landscape the old marble quarry. He directed the installation of stone walks, rare plants, benches, a cave or two, and a pond usually described as, quote, bottomless, though in truth about 35 feet, with a rowboat called the Queen Mary. At its completion, Quarry Park was an expensive showplace that was open to the public and frequently used for fundraising events for local charities— A 1936 garden party, sponsored by the Women's Club and the Garden Club, was destined, according to the Hastings News, to, quote, go down in the history of Hastings as one of the important events of this summer. After he had beautified the quarry, Dr. Langmuir offered it to a botanical research center, the Boyce-Thompson Institute of Yonkers, but the offer was refused. He then tried to give it to the village of Hastings, but it, too, refused his offer— No doubt the trustees felt the problems of maintaining and policing the park would have been too expensive a burden. Then, too, there were the dangers of people falling off the cliffs and drowning in the pond, to say nothing of the stray goat. Dr. Langmuir died in 1941, and his widow two years later. Her will gave Quarry Park to Andrew Ryan, who had been the Langmuir's chief gardener for many years. He tried to raise chickens there, but the project failed— He then attempted to grow nursery stock, but that venture failed, too. Finally, in May of 1950, Ryan sold the property to Quarry Realty Corp and used part of the money to take his family on a trip to Ireland. As the years passed and the village grew, waste disposal became a matter of concern. In 1963, the Board of Trustees passed a resolution authorizing the village to purchase the site for $20,000. Slowly, the once-beautiful quarry filled up with rusty bedsprings, tires, discarded mattresses, used stoves, and other detritus, until it was almost level with the aqueduct.
1: Thanks, Lauren. What an amazing amount of action that little piece of land has seen. And now, we're at the point where Quarry Park hits peak international fame— Daniel Ellsberg, who leaked the Pentagon Papers to the New York Times and the Washington Post, credits the park, which, remember, would have been the town dump during this time, for keeping him out of prison. Here's Adam Tracy from Hastings-on-Hudson, reading from the 2017 memoir The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner, by Daniel Ellsberg.
0: After I'd entrusted my nuclear papers to Harry, he kept them for almost two years until June 13, 1971 in the basement of his home in Hastings-on-Hudson, where he lived with his wife, Sophia. Then, when the New York Times and the Washington Post were enjoined from publication and a manhunt was on for me and Patricia, Harry buried the material in a compost heap in his backyard in a cardboard box inside the green garbage bag. During the next 13 days, while the FBI was still searching for us, Harry transferred them again. It was a good thing he did. The very next day, his neighbor told him that she had observed men... In civilian clothes, probing his compost heap with long metal rods. Just in time, Harry had buried the box inside its bag into the town trash dump. He had dug out a space for it in the side of the bluff rising above the dirt road that bordered the dump. There was an old gas stove resting on the bluff just above the burial spot to identify it. But that summer, not long after I'd been indicted, a near hurricane hit Hastings on Hudson. The bluff and its contents collapsed over the roadway and down the slope below it. The stove was blown down and rolled a hundred feet or more from its last position. Harry didn't tell me right away. Not until he spent days and then weeks trying to find the lost box. Then he and his friend Barbara Denyer and her husband spent weekend after weekend searching. At one point, they rented a backhoe bulldozer to turn up the dirt in the dump. The driver, a town employee, got in trouble when it came out that he allowed the bulldozer to be used for a private purpose. Barbara had told him she was looking for a thesis manuscript that had been put in the trash by mistake. All this led to the discovery of more than one green garbage bag, perhaps a thousand of them, in the trash dump, but none with the top-secret documents inside. Denyer's husband quit the project, her weekend obsession had put a strain on their marriage, and eventually Harry did too, though Barbara continued to look for most of the year, sometimes with her daughter. Meanwhile, I was on trial and not thinking much about the revelations still to come. Harry's heroic efforts kept me thinking that eventually the treasure would be found. That didn't wane until nearly the end of the trial when he reported that much of the contents of the dump had been moved to become landfill for the foundation of a condominium nearby which was about to be covered with concrete. There might no longer be Any way to get at the missing box, he said, without using dynamite. A joke. The documents were lost. Forty-five years have gone by, and most of what was buried then has remained secret. What a backhoe or dynamite could not pry loose, the Freedom of Information Act, with many important exceptions, freed from the safes where this information has wrongfully been sequestered for a half-century. Yet, a good deal of what was lost has since been declassified.
1: Thanks, Adam. So we can conclude that for at least some of the Pentagon Papers, Quarry Park is their final resting place. Now we're going to hear from John Flack, an executive committee member of the Friends of the Croton Aqueduct, for what happens next to our ever-changing, ever-popular parcel of land. John wasn't available to record during the time of production, so you'll hear actor Ed Herpsman from Hastings-on-Hudson reading Flack's words. I began my
3: work for the Quarry Study
1: Committee, as it was called back in 2004, when it was created
3: by the village's board of trustees. The Committee of Thirteen, led by Susan Maggiato, took our task to investigate the options for repurposing a 5.5-acre parcel that had seen many lives very seriously. We studied the history of the site, conducted a guided walk, and held a public meeting to gather feedback. All of this crystallized into the committee's consensus that the park should be a passive, non-destination, minimal maintenance space. We imagined people coming into the park while walking along the old Croton Aqueduct Trail to enjoy a quiet, contemplative space. In 2005, we submitted a report to the village board with our suggestions, and it was approved. First, we applied for various grants to get the project running. In all, we raised enough money to hire a landscape architect and to pay for emissions tests to determine the level of remedial capping required by the Department of Environmental Conservation. We received several design bids and ended up going with Matthews Nielsen. They estimated the capping and construction costs to be over a million dollars. While we were able to raise about 100000 through grants, village matches, and private funding, the bulk of the funds eventually came from several years of negotiation with British Petroleum, the Arco Trust, the village trustees, and Riverkeeper. In the end, the significant funding sources were the Arco Trust and British Petroleum. BP, the owner of the most contaminated northern portion of the mile-long riverfront site, where the Anaconda factory once dumped PCBs into the soil, river, and groundwater, was on the hook for remediation of the brownfield. Mayor Peter Swiderski laid out the broad strokes of this effort in 2016. Here's Peter's message from that time.
1: BP Atlantic Ridgefield is the current owner of the portion of the waterfront covered by this agreement. It is their property, their buildings, and the pollution beneath its soil and waters is their problem. But its ultimate disposition is our village's interest and hence why we joined the lawsuit and were active participants in all parts of this process.
3: These negotiations culminated in 2016 with a consent decree that promised real and sustained improvements. Principally, it ensured cleanup of this shoreline, but it also secured $1.3 million in funding for the restoration of Quarry Park. In addition, another 700,000 was released to the restoration from the Arco Trust's funds with Riverkeeper's blessing. Chris Lomolino, Christine Lenner, and I, the remaining members of the original Committee of 13, had been working on this for over a decade. We were delighted. This would create a continuous chain of parks and trails west to east across Hastings. And it would undo the historical mistake of turning this beautiful, storied property into a dump. By 2019, the village had hired a contractor and broke ground on the park. The principal concern and cost was capping the footprint of the former dump—all those bed frames, the washers, and dryers. There were no emissions coming out. It was the lowest level of remediation required. Still, we had to get it right. There's a special kind of dirt required for such capping. The dirt alone cost around $600,000. And we had to be exacting as we put it down. It was a process of trial and error, but the swales and mounds we have today are in compliance. Once we gain the final approval from the DEC, which is imminent, we can finally declare the park open. But you can go there today. You can sit and gaze out at the views across the Hudson to the Palisades. It's a special place. We hope to clear a path at the top of the marble cliffs so people can have the best view. We might bring some goats in to graze the vegetation off the cliffs to emulate, in a mini way, the palisades across the river. We'd like to clear some trees from the wooded knoll and revive the existing Langmuir steps up to it. What this space will eventually become, who knows? It depends on how much it evolves over time. In the future, we might even have a concert in the panhandle of the park. The mayor's husband. Who plays saxophone? Tested the acoustics. He says the sound quality is pretty good.
1: That was Ed Herbstman reading for John Flack on the new developments of Quarry Park in Hastings on Hudson, New York. John is an executive committee member of the Friends of the Croton Aqueduct. Yesteryear Stories from Home is produced by Tim Donahue, Eduardo Ballerini, and me, Melanie Hoops. Sound design by Josh Gauvier and featuring archives from the Hastings Historical Society. The music you've been hearing is played by the aforementioned mayor's husband, Tim Armacost. Thanks, Tim. If you have any suggestions for our podcast, you can email us at yesteryearpodcast at gmail.com. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. From all of us to all of you, thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with more stories from the place that you call home.